Chapter Three of Flower of the North. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. Flower of the North by James Oliver Curwood. Chapter Three. For a full minute, Philip paced back and forth without speaking. Then he stopped and faced Gregson, who was staring at him. A million, Greggy, he repeated in the same soft voice. A hundred thousand dollars to my credit in a First National Bank. While I was up here hustling to get affairs on a working basis, eager to show the government and the people what we could do, and would do, triumphing in our victory over the trust, and figuring each day on my scheme of making this big, rich North deal a staggering blow to those accursed combinations down there, they were at work, too. While I was dreaming and doing these things, Brokaw and the others had formed the great Northern Fish and Development Company, had incorporated it under the laws of New Jersey, and had already sold over a million dollars' worth of stock. The thing was in full swing when I reached headquarters. I had authorized Brokaw to act for me, and I found that I was vice president of one of the biggest legalized robbery combinations of recent years. More money had been spent in advertising than in development work. Hundreds of thousands of copies of my letters from the North, filled to the brim with the enthusiasm I had felt for my work and projects, had been sent out broadcast, luring buyers of stock. In one of these letters I had said that if a half of the lakes I had mapped out were fished, the North could be made to produce a million tons of fish a year. 200,000 copies of this letter were sent out, but Brokaw and his associates had omitted the words, if a half of the lakes mapped out were fished. It would take 15,000 men, a thousand refrigerator cars, and a capital of five million to bring this about. I was stunned by the enormity of their fraud, and yet when I threatened to bring the whole thing to smash, Brokaw only laughed and pointed out that not a single caution had been omitted. In all of the advertising, it was frankly stated that our license was provisional, subject to withdrawal if the company did not keep within laws. That very frankness was an advertisement. It was something different. It struck home where it was meant to strike, among small and unfledged investors. It roped them in by thousands. The shares were ten dollars each and non-accessible. Five out of six orders were from one to five shares. Ninety-nine out of every hundred were not above ten shares. It was damnable. The very people for whom I wanted the North to fight had been humbugged to the tune of a million and a quarter dollars. Within a year, Brokaw and the others had floated a scheme which was worse than any trust, for the trusts pay back a part of their steals and dividends. And I was responsible. Do you realize that, Greggy? It was I who started the project. It was my reports from the North which chiefly induced people to buy. And this company, a company of robbers licensed under the law, I am its founder and its vice president. Philip dropped back into his chair. The face that he turned to Gregson was damp with perspiration, though the room was chilly. "'You stayed in,' said Gregson. "'I had to. There wasn't a loophole left open to me. 
There wasn't a single point at which I could bring attack against Brokaw and the others. They were six veritable Bismarcks of deviltry and shrewdness. They hadn't overstepped the law. They had sold a million and a quarter of stock on a hundred-thousand-dollar investment. But Brokaw only laughed when I raged at this. "'Why, Philip,' he said, "'we value our license alone at over a million. "'And there was no law which could prevent them from placing that value upon it, or more. "'There was one thing that I could do, and only one. "'I could resign, decline to accept my stock and the hundred thousand, "'and publicly announce why I had broken off my connections with the company. "'I was about to do this when cooler judgment prevailed.' It occurred to me that there would have to be an accounting. The company might sell a million and a quarter of stock, but in the end there would have to be an accounting. If I was out of the game, it would be easily made. If I was in... Well, do you see, Greggy? There was still a chance of making the company win out as a legitimate enterprise, even though it began under the black flag of piratical finance and fraud. Brokaw and the others were astonished at the stand I took. It was like throwing a big, ripe plum into the fire. Brokaw was the first to hedge. He came over to my side in a private interview which we had, and for the first time I convinced him completely of the tremendous possibilities before us. To my surprise, he began to show actual enthusiasm in my favor. We figured out how the company, if properly developed, could be made to pay a dividend of fifty cents a share on the stock issued within two years. This, I thought, would be at least a partial return of the original steel. Brokaw worked the thing through in his own way. He was authorized to vote for one of the directors, who was in Europe, and he won over two of the others. As a consequence, we voted all of the money in the treasury, nearly six hundred thousand dollars, and the remainder of the stock that was on the market, for development purposes. Brokaw then made the proposition that the company buy up any interest that wished to withdraw. The two MPs and a professional promoter from Toronto immediately sold out at 50000 each. With their original 100000 these three retired with an aggregate steal of nearly half a million. Pretty good work for yours truly, eh, Greggy? Good heaven, think of it! I started out to strike a blow, to launch a gigantic project for the people, and this was what I had hatched. Robbery, bribery, fraud! He paused, his hands clenched until the blue veins stood out on them like whipcords. And, Gregson spoke uneasily, and what? Philip's fingers relaxed their grip on the table. If that had been all, I wouldn't have called you up here, he continued. I've taken a long time in coming down to the real hell of the affair because I wanted you to understand the situation from the beginning. After I left Brokaw, I came north again. I possessed all the funds necessary to make an honest working organization out of the Northern Fish and Development Company. I hired two hundred additional men, added twenty new fishing stations, began a second roadbed to the main line, and started a huge dam at Blind Indian Lake. 
We had thirty horses, driven up through the wilderness from Le Pas, and twenty teams on the way. There didn't appear to be an important obstacle in the path of our success, and I had recovered most of my old enthusiasm when Brokaw sprung a new mine under my feet. He had written a long letter almost immediately after I left him, which had been delayed at several places. In it he told me that he had discovered a plot to wreck our enterprise, that some powerful force was about to be pitted against us in the very country we were holding. I could see that Brokaw was tremendously worked up when he wrote the letter, and that for once he felt himself outwitted by a rival faction, and realized to the full a danger which it took me some time to comprehend. He had discovered absolute evidence, he said, that the bunch of trust capitalists whom he had beaten were about to attack us in another way. Their forces were already moving into the North Country. Their object was to stir up the country against us, to bring about that condition of unrest and antagonism between the people of the North and ourselves, which would compel the government to take away our license. Remember, this license was only provisional. It was, in fact, left to the people of the North to decide whether we should remain among them or not. If they turned against us, there would be only one thing for the government to do. At first, Brokaw's letter caused me no very great uneasiness. I knew the people up here. I knew that the Indian, the breed, the Frenchman, and the white of this God's country were as invulnerable to bribery as Brokaw himself is to the pangs of conscience. I loved them. I had faith in them. I knew them to possess an honor which is not known down there, where we have a church on every four corners, and where the word of God is preached day and night in the open streets. I felt myself warming with indignation as I replied to Brokaw, resenting his insinuation as to the crimes which a half-savage people might be induced to commit for a little whiskey and a little money. And then... Whitmore wiped his face. The lines settled deeper about his mouth. Greggy, a week after I received this letter, two warehouses were burned on the same night at Blind Indian Lake. They were three hundred yards apart. There is absolutely no doubt that it was incendiarism. He waited in silence, but Gregson still sat watching him in silence. That was the beginning, three months ago. Since then, some mysterious force has been fighting us at every step. A week after the warehouses burned, a dredge and boat-building yard, which we had constructed at considerable expense at the mouth of the Grey Beaver, was destroyed by fire. A little later, a premature explosion of dynamite cost us ten thousand dollars and two weeks' labor of fifty men. I organized a special guard service, composed of fifty of my best men, but it seemed to do no good. Since then we have lost three miles of roadbed, destroyed by a washout. A terrific charge of dynamite had been used to let down upon us the water of a lake which was situated at the top of a ridge near our right-of-way. Whoever our enemies are, they seem to know our most secret movements, and attack us whenever we leave a vulnerable point open. The most surprising part of the whole affair is this. In spite of my own efforts to keep our losses quiet, 
The rumor has spread for hundreds of miles around us, even reaching Churchill, that the Northerners have declared war against our enterprise and are determined to drive us out. Two-thirds of my men believe this. MacDougall, my engineer, believes it. Between my working forces and the Indians, French, and half-breeds about us, there has slowly developed a feeling of suspicion and resentment. It is growing, every day, every hour. If it continues, it can result in but two things. Ruin for ourselves, triumph for those who are getting at us in this dastardly manner. If something is not done very soon, within a month, perhaps less, the country will run with the blood of vengeance from Churchill to the barons. If what I expect to happen does happen, there will be no government road built to the bay, the new buildings at Churchill will turn gray with disuse, the treasures of the north will remain undisturbed, the country itself will slip back a hundred years. The forest people will be filled with hatred and suspicion so long as the story of great wrong travels down from father to son. And this wrong, this crime... Philip's face was white, cold, almost passionless in the grim hardness that had settled in it. He unfolded a long typewritten letter and handed it to Gregson. "'That letter is the final word,' he explained. It will tell you what I have not told you. In some way it was mixed in my mail, and I did not discover the error until I had opened it. It is from the headquarters of our enemies, addressed to the man who is in charge of their plot up here. He waited, scarce breathing, while Gregson bent over the typewritten pages. He noted the slow tightening of the other's fingers as he turned from the first sheet to the second, he watched Gregson's face, the slow ebbing of color, the gray-white that followed it, the stiffening of his arms and shoulders as he finished. Then Gregson looked up. "'Good God!' he breathed. For a full half-minute the two men gazed at each other across the table without speaking. End of chapter 3 Recording by Roger Moline